This program is brought to you by the partners of A Root Awakening International. Help others find truth. Support A Root Awakening International today. Most of us understand that the modern state of Israel was created in 1948, but what led up to it was a complicated, messy situation after World War I. Al McCarn sheds light on the head-spinning details of how Israel became a country and where the name Palestine came from. Because it's the end of the sixth day, the sun is set, and this is Shabbat Night Live. Shabbat Shalom Torah fans, welcome to Shabbat Night Live with Michael Rue. Tonight we present a very interesting bit of history you may or may not know about Israel. Al McCarran joins us again tonight for episode two of our series, The Miracle of Israel. And tonight we are going to examine what happened before 1948 as Israel was coming together. But as you will see, it was only by the grace of Yehovah that Israel ever had a modern existence. So. We are entering now into the 14th day of the Omer as well, as seen on the astronomically and agriculturally corrected biblical Hebrew calendar. Now, please welcome my co-host, Ted Clayton. Thanks for having me here, Scott. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not going to want to miss a moment of this uh, great teaching with Al McCarn tonight, because yep. like I was saying last week, Al did a podcast with us, and there is just so much information in this guy. His testimony is incredible, and you're not going to want to miss a moment of tonight's Shabbat Night Live. Call your friends, call your neighbors, have them come up. Tonight's the night to watch something really incredible on Shabbat Night Live. And there's some good stuff on the show, but you also did a podcast with him. You mentioned it last week, and I totally forgot about that because yeah. I did the episodes with him, and then he goes off to your studio to do the podcast, and I, I totally forgot that he sort of revealed some other things on there as well. Absolutely. You know, Rude Radio Podcast, ladies and gentlemen, is a staple of ours now here to go even more in depth with, uh, you know, interviews, finding out where all of this stuff began with these uh, different speakers. For example, uh, we were talking with Dr. Nehemia Gordon one time and found out that his love of the Bible came from nothing other than Dr. Who. And <laughs> really? So, yeah, so it, it was kind of an Dr. incredible— Who? I know. You have to watch that <laughs> podcast, too, ladies and gentlemen, to hear about that. It was really kind of incredible. And it really wasn't where uh, his uh, love of the Bible came from, but his ability to be able to study and to go in depth mm. uh, with that. Uh, and it started all out with Dr. Who. And if you want to know more about that, you got to go to Rude Radio Podcast and watch that program. It was absolutely incredible. And, and you know, Scott, there's just so much stuff going on. And you know, I don't know that some people don't even realize that we have a newsletter here at A Rude Awakening Oh, that's right, yeah. Well. Yeah, so if you go to rudeawakening.tv slash newsletter, you can see it there online. And if you want to get the paper version, that's really easy too. Yeah. Anybody who donates to this ministry during the last year or buys anything from the store, you're automatically on the list. Uh, now, of course, you have to check a box, say, yes, it's okay to email me. Yeah. We use that as our cue that you're okay to receive mail as well. So yeah. we'll give that to you by mail. And uh, again, it's it's anyone who buys anything in the last year or, or supports the ministry ministry in, in any way. So we'll easily give that to you as well. And, and uh, some of, there's a couple of uh, testimonies from that newsletter. I was going to ask you okay. about that, if you could read some of these testimonies for, sure. for us. Yeah, th these are some great stories we have come in. And um, there's this one guy named Herson. Mm -hmm. So Herson wrote to us and Herson says, my twin sister Larissa decided that she needed more of Yeshua in her life. It caught me off, gu caught me off guard. I was worried that something bad had happened. <laughs> uh -huh. But to my relief, she told me that people keep saying that we are in the last days. Isn't yeah. that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she wants to do something right before it's too late. 
do something right before it's, well, it's too late. Too late yeah. Not right before it's too late, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, you don't want to cut it that close. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so she's, he says, we prayed together. I anointed her with oil. This is a young guy in his 20s. This yeah. is just a young guy. And I, de I declared that uh, she is in Yeshua's hand and nothing or no one can take her away from him. We are adopted, chosen, forgiven, redeemed, and sealed, according to Ephesians 1. Amen. Then I pronounced the ironic blessing over her in Hebrew and English and gave thanks to our Abba for this joy. My heart is moved, so thankful to Yehovah. He's listening to my prayers and has honored my fasting concerning my family. This wow. is great. Love to hear that from younger people. Absolutely. You know, you know it, ladies and gentlemen, there's a new generation coming up right now and they seek the truth as well. And if it wasn't for Michael and his teachings here and all the teachers that come to A Root Awakening International, just to give truth and to talk about the truth of the Bible instead of what has been spoon-fed over the years. Ladies and gentlemen, where else can you get this but right here at Root Awakening? And you know what, if believers, young believers who have their head on straight, they see all these things uh, in the world and yeah. you know, as what the enemy intends for evil, God yeah. will turn to good because Amen. it backfires. Right. There's just too much out there, all this right. crap that's out in the world. The young people see it because it's in their face, in school, yeah. at the colleges. I mean, I can speak for that from my daughter's yes. perspective. Yes. And they look at this and go, that's obvious that's not the way to go. What's the right way to go? And we started seeing that a few years ago at yes. our live events, which, you know, we just had our first live event in a while with, yes. with the recent Passover. Yeah. But when we, you know, in 2018, 2019, we started seeing younger people come to these things. Yes. Not just with their parents, coming by themselves. Amen. Early 20s, and they're, they're, because they see something's not right here. And you know what, Scott? With all of the stuff going on, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a terrible shooting at a Christian school. And, you know, with the world, with what's happening in the world today, we need the truth of the Almighty now more than ever. We need to be able to say, yes, this is real, this is not, and this is what's right, and this is what's wrong. And you know, Scott, I think that's a lot of what's happening in this country. That's what's yep. going wrong, is we don't understand the right and wrong of it anymore. And ladies and gentlemen, that's why A Root Awakening exists, is to be able to have the truth of the gospel of the Almighty, the kingdom of God, right here in front of everybody. Michael has said that for years, that there has been a loss, a schism, as it were, of the truth of the gospel. And what Michael would say is the mamby-pamby- uh, uh, Greasy grace. Greasy oh. grace, sloppy agape of it all. Ladies and gentlemen, now is the most time that you've got to start believing in truth and that's why a rude awakening exists, is to tell you the truth of the Bible and the truth of the Almighty God. Indeed, and sometimes we sit up here and we have to, you know, we have to uh, appeal uh, with a message of, you know, asking for donations and that yes. kind of thing. And we do appreciate that. But you know, just like Herson says, uh, prayer changed his life. Absolutely, and, and you know, we 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 you know? we long for prayer more than anything, ladies and gentlemen, because we we pray every day for you, our partners and the people that watch this program. And we can't tell you how important your prayers for this ministry are. And we say thank you once again for each and every prayer that comes our way. Yeah, and we do literally pray, pray for the folks uh, every morning because yeah, we Every do. morning we at 9 a.m. Eastern time, we gather together as a staff and we pray not only for the needs of the staff and the needs of the ministry, but we pray for your needs as well as a group. And you know what the Bible says, wherever two or more are gathered, it shall be done on, in heaven as it is on earth. Mm -hmm. So ladies and gentlemen, we pray for you every single working day. Yep, and thank you for doing it for us. Yes, indeed. All right, most understand that Israel, the modern state of Israel, was created in 1948. But what led up to that is a complicated, messy situation that happened after World War I. So Al McCarran sheds light on the head-spinning details of how Israel became a country tonight. Stay tuned for that. The Kiddish with Michael is next. Throughout the centuries, enemies have gone to war over the worthiest of causes. And yet, all of these causes fade into the pages of history. So why do we fight? If our adversary can cause us to forget how we became who we are, then 
we become unstable structures with no firm foundation. Al McCarn served as a military intelligence officer with the United States Army and comes from a long line of military men. But his greatest tour of duty was not to serve America. It was to serve his family, just as his enemies were doing. This teaching, The Warrior's Kingdom Calling, is our gift to thank you for supporting A Rude Awakening International. When you donate $50 to this ministry in April, we'll send you The Warrior's Kingdom Calling on DVD or Blu-ray. Donate $100 and we'll send you The Warrior's Kingdom Calling, plus a pewter and rhinestone wall hanging in the shape of the word Ahava, meaning love in Hebrew. Donate $300 and we'll send you three gifts. The Warrior's Kingdom Calling, the Hebrew Ahava wall hanging, plus a decorative 10-inch resin scroll of the Lord's Prayer, complete with a metal easel for stand-up display. These gifts are a limited-time offer from Michael Rood to thank you for your support. Make your donation today and receive the $50 gift, the $100 gift, or the $300 gift. Get these exclusive thank you gifts when you make a donation to support A Rude Awakening International in April. Call 888-766-3610 or get your gift online with a donation at monthlylovegift.com. The night of the Last Supper, Yeshua took bread and he blessed the Most High. Baruch Atah Yehovah Eloheinu Melech HaOlam and he said, this represents my body, which will be broken for you. As often as you do it from now on, understand this has always represented my broken body. And often, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of what I'm about to do for you. Then he took his cup and he told his disciples after he blessed it, after he blessed the Most High, and he said, Baruch Atah Yehovah, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Pri Hagafen. Blessed are you, Yehovah, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth and has created the fruit of the vine. And Yeshua said, you divide my cup among yourselves. And as he passed his cup around and they poured a bit of his into their cups, it got back to him empty and he said, I will not drink a drop of the fruit of the vine till I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. But as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Not only that I will pay for the broken covenant, that I will pay for the transgression, that I will renew the covenant in my blood, but also remember that I am waiting for you at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that is when I will drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Until then, Shabbat Shalom. We are learning some things in this series on Shabbat Night Live. We're learning about the Rothschilds. A lot of us have a negative opinion about them, but there's some stuff we didn't know. We found out last week from our guest, Al McCarn. Al, welcome back. And you know, Michael heard us talking about this in the studio, and he's with us again this week. And uh, so he said, hey, mention the winery. Do you know the winery about the, the, the Rothschilds? Uh, when he was living in Israel, he knew of it. So what, what can you tell us about this? Okay, and uh, thank you, Michael, for telling me a story I didn't know, is that the Tishbe Winery was founded by the uh, winemaker for the Baron Rothschild. And um, wine is important in the scriptures, in the Torah, in Jewish culture to this day. In fact, I have heard uh, one teacher was asked, well, well, when Jesus changed the water into wine, was it real wine or was it just grape juice? And his question back was, well, was it a Jewish wedding? The answer was, yes, it was. He said, yeah, it was wine. <laughs> so, and I have other stories. No, wine is important. Let me, let me read something from Jeremiah 31. And this is an important prophecy that many of the Jewish pioneers I know and know of are walking out. Uh, Jeremiah 31, that's the New Covenant chapter. I'll be going back to that later. And here is a promise of the restoration of all Israel. And in verse four, by the way, my, I'm reading out of the Tree of Life version. That's my current favorite translation. 
the Lord says, again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. Planters will plant and use them. For there will be a day when watchmen will call out in the hill country of Ephraim, arise, let us go up to Zion, to Adonai our God. For thus says Adonai, sing aloud with joy for Jacob, shout with the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise and say, Adonai, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and I will gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant, together with she who is in labor with child. A great throng will return here. And I'm just gonna stop right there because uh, those promises are being walked out this very day in Israel. The Tishbe winery is one, one example, but when, when the great creator and redeemer of the universe is saying that there will be vineyards on the hills of Samaria again, there are actually people foolish enough to take him at his word and, and go do it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, and you know, Tishbe Winery is one of them, but uh, there are many others now, wineries in what the rest of the world calls the West Bank, but which we know as the biblical heartland of Judea and Samaria. In fact, um, there's a winery on the Mount of Blessing. When Joshua brought the people into Israel, um, because God told Moses, tell Joshua, do this, Half the tribe stood on the Mount of Blessing, half stood on the Mount of Cursing, and they repeated the blessings and the curses that, that God had given them to say in the Torah. Well, there's now a winery on the Mount of Blessing, Harbacha, and there are wineries all through. There's a whole Christian ministry, Hayovel, that is dedicated to going and fulfilling this prophecy by taking people to help Jewish vineyard owners to harvest their grapes. I've had friends of mine who've gone over there and, and done the, the vine dressing for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's not the only thing they're, they're involved in. Uh, Scott, do you know there are only three ministries at work in Judea and Samaria, Christian works? Hmm. Only three. I mean, you know about the many that are involved in Israel proper, as the world would say. Um, but Hayavel is, is one of three and it's, just a family that said, God said this, that's happening over there, we can be part of it. And um, they've been doing it for over 20 years and they have great trust and honor among the Jewish people, among their rabbis and the government. And that's an American organization, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah it is, um, based in, in Missouri. So in fact, Hayavel now has a um, YouTube video that they run, it's called The Israel Guys, and if you wanna get and on the ground perspective of what's going on in Israel, other than what the media cycle will tell you. These guys are right there in Judea and Samaria. Uh, and they have a new tree planting program. It's called the Greening Israel Project. Now you can plant a tree in Israel through the Jewish National Fund. And that is a very good thing because it also is part of a prophecy fulfilled. You know, in 1869, when Mark Twain went through, the land was just a desert. Now the forests are back and it's beautiful all around Jerusalem. And it's because Jews and those who are uh, supporting Jews have been planting trees in Israel for over a century. Well, now Hayuvel started this project in cooperation with Israeli authorities to bring back the forests of Judea and Samaria. Mm. So that's one of three ministries operating in the biblical heartland. The other one is um, by my friends, the Werp family. It's called Blessed by Israel. That's blessed by B-U-Y Israel because they're a business. And they market products that are made in Judea and Samaria, things like chocolate and coffee and uh, soap and honey. Because otherwise, these Jewish pioneers who are castigated by the world as settlers and occupiers, they have problems getting markets for their goods. So here is this Christian organization that believes these promises and is helping to bring them to about. And uh, you can go to their website, blessedbyisrael.com, and you can buy products from Israel. 
A lot of the folks who make that are, are former refugees or people who came there and just had nothing, right? I mean, a lot of these organizations do that type of thing. Some are, yes. Some are Orthodox Jews who are living elsewhere in Israel and said, you know, I think Hashem is calling me here. Hmm. So they, they go and do that. <laughs> uh, like the Levi family that has uh, started the Harpacha winery. It's near Levi, was not a, a, a winemaker, but they felt this call. Yeah, and it's like Christians feel this call and a pull from the Lord and an anointing to do a thing. It's the same in the Jewish world. Why? Because we're part of the same family. We're part of the same kingdom process. So when the Levi family is called to Harbracha to plant a vineyard, well, first of all, I have to learn how to, how to grow grapes and how to tend the vines. <laughs> and they also had a climatological and environmental study done which said, nah, you can't grow grapes here. Climate won't support it. You know what? There's this interesting little microclimate that has to do with the atmospheric conditions of that little plot of Israel that creates perfect conditions for this winery. And they produce world-class wines. Mm. And that's not, just the, that's not the only story um, of wineries throughout Israel and through this restoration process. Um, but I, you know, I was talking, Scott, last time about the first Aliyah, and I'd really like to go back there and pick up the story at that point. Let's do that. Yeah, um, because I'd mentioned throughout the 1800s, um, there's still persecution of, of Jews. There's still a simmering anti-Semitism that explodes from time to time and place to place, uh, such as Russia, whenever a czar was executed, well, or assassinated, the Jews are blamed. And that brings us anti-Jewish activities, policies, pogroms, riots. So in particular, the Eastern Europeans are feeling this throughout the 19th century. But what really gets the attention of Western European Jews is an affair that happened in France in 1894. Uh, there was a Jewish artillery officer in the French army uh, named Alfred Dreyfus. And um, a couple of his colleagues accused him of espionage, spying for the Germans and giving them French military secrets. The charges were all made up. Mm. Now that was eventually um, brought out and Dreyfus was exonerated in 1906. And oh, by the way, served with distinction in World War I as a French officer. But in the 1890s, he was castigated as a Jewish spy and as the scum of the earth and was not given a fair trial. The military mm. tribunal that heard his case sentenced him to exile at the penal colony on Devil's Island. Um, and, and it was not a happy place. Well, there was a particular journalist who was covering that trial. His name was Theodor Herzl. Herzl was born to a Jewish family in Budapest and moved to uh, Vienna. He had studied law and then moved to, into journalism. And um, the, the newspaper he was working for sent him to Paris to cover the Dreyfus trial. And that's where Herzl, who, by the way, was a secular Jew, that's where he came to understand that there was no solution to the Jewish problem in Europe unless the Jews got out of Europe and found a homeland. This, I mean, seeing, seeing the terrible naked anti-Semitism directed against Dreyfus and all the Jewish community by the French people, the French media, the French government, the French military, and it's echoed with what he's hearing in Vienna. He's realizing something has to be done. We are not ever going to be acceptable to these people. We can, we can go to their institutions, we can get their credentials, we can sometimes be in the same clubs with them, but we'll never be accepted. So that's why Herzl published a short book called The Jewish State, Der Judenstaat, in which he put forth his vision for a Jewish homeland, an independent Jewish state, 
where the Jewish people could go and be secure. Um, a lot of it was very idealistic, but it's still, and by the way, that's a good read. You can get it in many places online, free for nothing, <laughs> download it as a PDF, just read the Jewish state, and it'll tell you what was the spark that ignited the Zionist movement in the 1890s, because that was it. Mm. Yeah, and um, the people either loved it or hated it. It was either the thing that Jewish people grabbed onto as saying, this is what we've been waiting for all along. It's like Moses calling us again. Or they said, have nothing to do with that. It's only gonna make our situation worse. How would it make it worse? Just gathering everybody together, making you a target? Is that what the fear was or what? Well, making them more of a target than they were already. Yeah. Mm. That, that would be it. Unfortunately, that has sort of come true. Yes, no well, I mean, Israel. but if you think back in, in Egypt, since there's nothing new under the sun, I imagine there were similar things. Yeah. There were Hebrews who said, at last, God's heard us, we can go up, like, well, like, like our grandfather Jacob said. And then there were others who said, shh, shh, shh. no, no, the Egyptians might hear. Mm. <laughs> right. They've already killed our sons. You know, what else can they do to us? Um, but there was enough of a positive response that Herzl and a few others convened the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland in August of 1897. And that's where they established the agenda of procuring a homeland in Palestine. So who's part of this, this Congress? About 200 Jewish invitees from all over Europe, um, many of them from Eastern Europe, uh, a lot of them also from wealthier and, and more liberal Western countries, uh, Great Britain, France, Germany. Um, and a lot of them were, were secular Jews, but many of them were the believing Orthodox Jews, as we would call it, uh, call them. And although they came from different streams and they had many different agendas and many understandings of how this promise of the return of Israel would be fulfilled, they were able to come together and agree that there's only one place that it can be fulfilled and that is Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. Uh, Herzl spent the remaining years of his life trying to make that dream happen. He died young in 1904. Um, he spent his fortune and his health going from place to place in Europe, getting audiences with the Kaiser of Germany, with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, with uh, influential church leaders and diplomats, um, doing the best he could to persuade them that it was in their best interest for a Jewish homeland to be established. Hmm. And he was encouraged and aided by Christians who had this vision as well. In particular, an, an, an Anglican clergyman whose name is right on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he helped secure an audience with the German emperor uh, and also helped encourage Herzl and um, prayed for him. So from the very beginning, um, I could say in one sense, it was a Jewish Christian cooperation and partnership for the rebirth of Israel. In another sense, I would say that's Judah and Ephraim together to work this out. And Judah must go up first. That is the biblical principle. Um, it was, a, the obstacles against this were enormous because in 1895, 97, when the first Zionist Congress was convened, um, the Ottoman Empire was in charge, ruled Palestine. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was declining and on its last legs, the wolves were at the door. They were Russian and German and Austrian and English, British, French and American. They all wanted a piece of the Turkish Empire, uh, but no one wanted Turkey to go under because they didn't know what would happen if Turkey collapsed. So. That's why the Ottoman Empire is called the sick man of Europe, because for a hundred years, all the great powers had done their best to prop it up because they couldn't understand uh, and couldn't envision what would happen after the Turkish Empire disintegrated. And they knew that it would, the, the post 
Ottoman reality might be worse than the current reality. Mm. So they played Turkey off of each other, the British, the French, the Germans, the Austrians, the Turks, or the Russians, uh, to try to get advantages or contain the Ottomans. Um, and it was in the midst of this imperial dance of great powers that Herzl has the vision for a Zionist movement and a reestablishment of the Jewish people in their homeland. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So um, how is this gonna change? Everyone likes the idea. No one knows how to bring it about. And then comes World War I. <laughs> so uh, 1914, that was the world that we went into with these great empires who are calling the shots for the rest of the world. Everyone has sympathy with the Jews, but they want that sympathy to be exercised with Jews being somewhere else, not in our town. Mm. But they don't know how to get them there. Then comes World War I, and at the end of that four-year conflict, four empires fell apart. The Russian Empire disintegrated and fell into revolution that became the Soviet Union. Uh, the German Empire disintegrated at the end of World War I and was dismembered by its Western enemies. The Austro-Hungarian Empire splintered and was dismembered and became... Austria, Hungary, the Balkan states. Um, and then the Ottoman Empire fell apart. And suddenly there is this new post-Ottoman reality in the Middle East. And the, the great powers, the allied powers are meeting in Vienna, no, in, in Versailles in France in 1919 to figure out how to put it all back together. And it comes out with a number of peace conferences. There's the conference at Versailles, which dictates peace to Germany. And then there were subsequent conferences that go all the way up to 1923, making the separate peace with Austria and with Turkey. <laughs> and it comes out at the end with, well, yes, there should be a Jewish homeland, a mandate that can be administered by the British Empire in Palestine but it's more complicated than that. Well, hang on to that thought. I will gladly. Hang on to that thought. <laughs> this, this sounds juicy. All right, so thank you for bringing Al here. It's because of you that he is here. You make Shabbat Night Live happen for you and for people in the future. We'll let you do that again in the next few minutes. Thank you. Hey, thank you for supporting Shabbat Night Live. You know, peace treaties always sound like a good idea, but even the Bible warns us that when they warn, when they tell us peace and safety, look out. That's trouble coming. And Al, uh, tell us about what happened here after World War I. There was, uh, there was a peace treaty, but uh, this, yeah. this spelled trouble. The war to end all wars wasn't and didn't. <laughs> <laughs> to put it simply, yes. Yeah, okay. So in, during the, the, the conflict, during World War I, um, there was a stalemate in Western Europe as all the horrors of trench warfare, you, you can, you know, if you see the movie 1917, which was an excellent depiction of it in recent cinema, uh, cinema um, that was what's going on. And so the British and the French were looking for other ways around to get at the Germans and the Austrians and the Turks and um, decided that it might be good if we tried to go through Turkey. But going through Turkey was a lot harder than I thought. There was this terrible incident at Gallipoli in 1915, which to this day is steered, seared into the national consciousness of Australians and New Zealanders. Um, and that meant there's got to be another way. So the British began to negotiate with the tribes of the Arabian Peninsula. And if you've heard of Lawrence of Arabia, this is where that comes from. The, uh, the, the British sent Lieutenant T.E. Lawrence to Arabia to connect with the Bedouins, uh, particularly those who are under the sway of the Sharif of Mecca, uh, Hussein ibn Ali. And um, his sons, Abdullah and Faisal, became military commanders working with T.E. Lawrence and they initiated a guerrilla campaign that cut the Turkish uh, connection to Yemen, 
and all the way through the, uh, the Arabian Peninsula on the west side, the Red Sea side. And we're beginning to roll up the terrain and go up into what is now Jordan. And uh, they had great success. I mean, they took Aqaba at the head of the Red Sea um, in 1915 or 16 and were moving on into Jordan. So the British in Egypt, uh, which were, they, they made agreements with the Arab tribes that in return for their help, once the Turks were defeated, then they would help them establish an Arab kingdom over the Middle East. Mm. Yeah. That gets messy. It does, you know, <laughs> like from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean. And now at the same time, there's a British diplomat named Sykes who's working with a French diplomat named Picot, and the two of them come up with a map of what the Middle East will look like after this war. The Sykes-Picot Agreement says that the British can take charge of, um, you know, Palestine and Iraq and maybe Syria. The French will get Lebanon and uh, maybe northern Iraq. And so they draw this map and they say, this is how it's going to be. And they have their foreign offices uh, ratify it. And by the way, none of the, neither one of those men had ever been on the ground in the Middle East. They were negotiating, negotiating in Europe. And at the same time, the Jewish lobby <laughs> is working. There's a gentleman, a chemist by the name of Chaim Weizmann, who has been to the Zionist Congresses. He's known Theodor Herzl and the other early Zionist leaders, and he has become a Zionist himself, originally from, from Germany. Um, he's working in England, and he understands, and he's purposefully cultivating relationships with influential people in Britain, people like Winston Churchill, and members of parliament and members of the government. And uh, he is very successful in persuading the government at that time of uh, David Lloyd George, who was the prime minister, a Welsh Christian, a sincere Bible-believing Christian. Um, but his government is the one that authorized the Balfour Declaration in November of 1917. Uh, Lord Balfour was the foreign minister and he wrote this letter to Baron Rothschild saying his majesty's government looks with favor on the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. So all of these things are happening at once. We've got the British Empire coming down in favor of a Jewish homeland. We have the British in Egypt and in India, the foreign office there who are saying, all right, we've needed Arab help. We'll establish an Arab homeland and an Arab kingdom. And then we have the British and the French together with Sykes-Picot. They're saying, ah, oh, yeah, we'll have the post-war world divided up between Britain and France. And this is how the Middle East will look. So we get to the Versailles Conference in 1919 and all these different factions are, and different agreements are coming together at once. It's Kind of like a bad comedy. And were, were one aware of the other? I mean, how can they come together and promise the same thing? Um, <laughs> or were they? They weren't. Everybody was negotiating in a vacuum. Mm. For one thing, the, the British in Egypt were more looking toward the, um, the imperial establishment in India rather than the foreign office in England. Uh, and that's who Sykes was working for, is the foreign office in England. And meanwhile, um, the necessities of military operations are kind of below the prime minister's purview. <laughs> so he's not aware of what's going on with the Arabs. Oh, man. But does know Lord Rothschild and does know Chaim Weizmann. <laughs> so it's, it does come to, and then you get the mover and the shaker of all the allied leaders in Versailles in 1919 is a guy named Woodrow Wilson, mm. president of the United States. Peace is concluded on Wilson's 14 points peace plan, which favors national determination, national sovereignty. So the reason the Austro-Hungarian Empire, for example, was broken up into a number of different countries 
Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, you know, the reason Poland was reassembled after it had been dismembered by the Austrians, the Germans, and the Russians for 100 years is because Wilson said every people must have a homeland of their own. And the Jews perked up their ears and said, us too. And the Arabs said, us too. <laughs> and, and so the allied leaders are wrestling with all of this and they come up with a solution that satisfies no one. Uh, first of all, they conclude the humiliating peace with Germany and sow the seeds for World War II. And then they give, they create the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations. And they give a mandate, which means we don't know exactly what these peoples in this plot of, plot of ground here, this territory, how they're going to be governed, but we can give a mandate to a responsible sponsor like say the British or the French, and they can shepherd these people and bring them into some kind of national sovereignty at some point in the future. That's how British Palestine comes into being. Mm. And that's how Transjordan comes into being because the British are given the, the, the Palestinian mandate and they have the promise to the Jews, but they also have the promise to the Arabs and they figure it out this way. Here's how they, here's how they parcel out their conflicting uh, commitments. There can be a homeland for the Jews west of the Jordan River. The other side of the Jordan, Transjordan, we'll give that to, let's say, uh, how about, yeah, we'll just keep that there and administer it somehow, but the Arabs will get it. Now, Syria, that's a prize. Okay, Faisal, who helped us in Arabia, he will be king of Syria. And we've also got Iraq. Faisal has a brother named Abdullah. Let's make him king of Iraq. Iraq, by the way, was a made up country. It did not exist as an independent entity. It was three separate uh, provinces of the Ottoman Empire. So they glommed those three together and said, voila, Iraq. Mm. <laughs> and they put an Arab as king. An Arab from Arabia, not from the Euphrates Valley. That went over well. Uh, also, the French were saying, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. We had an agreement also. We, we need a piece of this, and we want more than Lebanon. We want Syria. And after all, we bled more than you did, British, so we want Syria. And the British said, can we talk to Faisal first? And the French said, no. And they invaded in 1922. And Faisal was run out of the country that he had been made king of. And the British said, oh, don't worry, don't worry. Okay, we'll shuffle the cards here a little bit. Um, we're gonna make you king in Baghdad of Iraq, okay? And um, don't worry, your brother will be fine. Abdullah, we will make king of Transjordan. All right, so we still have Jewish homeland in Western Palestine, all right? Transjordan, we have an Arab king. Uh, Iraq, we have an Arab king. The French are doing their thing in Syria and well, we're not responsible for that. Beautiful solution, isn't it? <laughs> Wonderful solution. You know, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan is the only one of those monarchies still here. King Abdullah II is the great-grandson of that Abdullah who was installed by the British. Oh. And um, because he's not native Jordanian, which is also a made-up country, it wasn't independent before that. Well, that's why the... Hashemite monarchy has been precarious from its beginning. And why even to this day, uh, the primary concern is how do we remain in power? Because the Hashemite kingdom in Baghdad didn't survive the 1930s. That was overthrown in, I think, 1936. Hmm. And there was a republic, sort of, it was, open to influence by the Third Reich. So there was, why did the British remain in the Middle East? Um, because the Nazis were moving in and they couldn't cede that territory to the German regime. Uh, okay, so what's happening in the Jewish part of Palestine? Well, in the 1920s, the British began to back away from that Balfour Declaration because they're saying, not only are there more Arabs than there are Jews, 
But we're seeing the German threat come and we're seeing this Soviet-Russian threat come and there's Japanese also. We're gonna need oil and you know who's got the oil? The Arabs have the oil. We better, we better be nice to them. It was in the 1920s as Jews are beginning to return and the second wave of Aliyah is happening that the myth of the Palestinian people and Palestinian statehood begins to take root. It is a myth. It never happened before. As I mentioned in the previous mm. program, we have the term Palestine because the Roman emperor Hadrian said, this land is no longer Jewish, it will be called Palestine. After the disastrous war that ended in 138, of the current era. So, the propagandists on, on that side, which by the way included Joseph Goebbels because the Palestinian leaders had connections with the Nazi regime as well in the 1930s. And uh, the, they, there was mutual support. So when it comes to anti-Jewish agitation among the Arabs resident there in the territory still known at that time in the 1930s as Palestine, a lot of it was a byproduct of the Nazi final solution and the anti-Semitic program that Hitler outlined in Mein Kampf. And uh, you know, even before the 1930s, even before Hitler came to power, this kind of agitation was happening and it resulted in a massacre of Jews in the city of Hebron. Hebron, where the patriarchs are buried, Hebron, the first plot of real estate that the nation of Israel purchased. Abraham bought that to bury Sarah. It's where he and Sarah are buried, where Isaac and Rebekah are buried, where Jacob and Leah are buried, the tomb of the patriarchs. And in 1929, dozens of Jews were killed there. And um, that happened in, in a number of anti-Jewish riots that went up and down the land protesting the presence of Jews and any British policy that would permit Jewish immigration. And thereafter, in the 1930s, the British Empire promulgated what was known as a white paper, a uh, decision on policy, which limited Jewish immigration to Palestine, strict limits, and catered to the Arabs there so as to keep the peace. And at that point, when the Holocaust, or as my Jewish friends would prefer to say, the Shoah, the great disaster, as that is heating up in Germany. And anti-Semitism is growing throughout Europe and Poland in particular, and Jews have nowhere to go, including the United States and Canada. The um, burgeoning Jewish network that eventually became the government of Israel. The Haganah and the armed resistance, the Irgun, um, they were at odds and fought each other a lot, by the way. But the Haganah, they put out a policy saying, we will, when, when World War II broke out, they said, we will fight the war as if there were no white paper. After the war, we will fight the British as if uh, we'll fight the white papers if there were no war. Mm. And so this is why you have Jewish um, units that are fighting with distinction in the British army in World War II, as their fathers had done in World War I, because they're seeing that's the best uh, for our survival. So that brings us up to World War II and the Holocaust. And you know, all of this, Scott, as I, begin to learn it, I'm seeing these are miracles that are unfolding right before our eyes and we don't recognize it. You know, just the fact that the Jewish people who are scattered and have been for 2000 years run out of one town, one region, one country after another, have suffered one outrage after another, often at the hands of Christians or in the name of Christ, um, they are beginning to regain a sense of national identity because of the promises that God had articulated through his prophets going back to Moses 
and all the way up. And even through, as I'd mentioned, the Vilna Gaon, who died in 1800, who's saying, God is still not done. We will be back in Jerusalem. Believe it. And these Jewish pioneers have been walking that out for two centuries now. It's, it's a miracle that they still exist. And that I take as the greatest evidence that there is a God who is willing and able to come through on his promises because the Jewish people still exist as a people and they are back in the ancestral homeland God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their seed. And the promises are being fulfilled. Those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, they'll recognize it. So now you're taking a personal role in this. You, mm-hmm. you feel that your wife and you uh, want to build that bridge, right? We'll talk more about this in another episode, but yeah. how, are you, how are you doing that? And why do you feel called for that? <laughs> well, when, when I began to understand the importance of Torah to Christians, and this is going back more than 20 years, 2001, 2002, um, I began to understand why is that important to me? It's because I am part of Israel. So, Yes, I'm part of the non-Jewish part, the house of Joseph, house of Ephraim. I'm not gonna prove my lineage, I can't. I just know that when the apostles are seeing that all these Gentiles are coming to faith in Messiah Yeshua, they are, I believe, seeing a fulfillment of the prophecy of restoring those lost tribes, the rebellious house of Joseph that cut ties with Judah and with the house of David. They're seeing these from the nations are coming in and they're being reconstituted. Well, that's our identity. We've lost that identity over the years because we've said Jesus came to throw out the law and and we live on grace now, just grace, but we're missing the rest of it. Um, This is what I began to understand in 2002, 2003. Um, I'm reading, I'm studying, I'm hearing from People like Batya and Angus Wooten, uh, J.K. McKee, even this fellow named Michael Rood. <laughs> <laughs> He's a character, I've heard of him. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Monty Judah, Rico Cortez, and, and many others. I, I have a great debt of honor to every one of them. And also to the Messianic Jewish teachers that I learned from, like Dan Juster. Um, and... I'm learning that however you look at it, whether you're like me saying, well, okay, I'm I'm not Jewish, I'm not of Judah, I must be of Ephraim. Okay, I'm still connected to Israel because of Israel's Messiah. If I talk that in Christian language, it means, hey, you're part of Israel because you are joined through Jesus to become that one new man, not to replace the Jews, but with them. And they have a part to fulfill in this, and so do we, and we will only do it together. Let's come back more talk uh, talk more about that next week. I think there's a story there. There's a lot. There's yes. a lot. So I that... would be glad to do it. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Al. Thank you for joining us. We're just scratching the surface here. Hope you've learned a lot. I'm getting a history lesson here, so thank you, Al. Al certainly knows his history, and if you want to hear more about that and where we belong and maybe help your Christian friends understand that in a, maybe a different way, come back next week, and we will learn all about that with Al McCarn. And until then, have a great week. Shabbat shalom. <laughs>